there are some estimates that it, that actually in a given 24-hour period, we could be exposed uh, to over 2 million distinct chemicals that are synthetic, that are not from nature, so that our body doesn't have necessarily a mechanism for processing those things. And this is why uh, these chemicals often get stuck and accumulate in our body. Greetings and love, you beautiful humans. It's Ben. It's good to have you here. Our guest this week is none other than Dr. Andrew Kaufman. If there's a person on the planet who should be in our seats hosting a podcast called Terrain Theory, it's Dr. Kaufman. He spent years in the medical field practicing as a forensic psychiatrist before awakening to the harms of the modern medical system. He now focuses on researching and understanding the relationship between body, mind, and spirit, and how to use nature to heal your own body. He's also one of the filmmakers behind the documentary Terrain. He's a leading voice in the small but growing group of dissidents dismantling germ theory one flawed isolation paper at a time. And he is what we consider something of an authority on terrain theory or the terrain model. Dr. Kaufman broke our terrain theory discussion into three categories, water, pleomorphism, and toxemia. We explored each one, touched on the origins and history of what we call terrain theory, and looked at a number of solutions to achieving optimal health in a toxic world. Pencils out, notebooks open. Welcome back to Terrain Theory. Okay, we are live. Dr. Andy Kaufman, welcome to the Terrain Theory Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, Ben. Thank you. I have to say, it feels like you should be in our seats uh, as the host of the Terrain Theory Podcast, given all the work that you've done <laughs> to date on the subject of Terrain Theory, um, working on the, the movie Terrain, uh, and so on. So we will do our best here not to uh, fall victim to imposter syndrome as we interview <laughs> you. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm very happy to be on this end. Appreciate it. Well, let's see. To begin, folks like you, Tom Cowan, the Baileys, Stefan Lanka, many others have done exhaustive work exposing the pseudoscience that underpins germ theory. And we've covered that angle on this podcast with a number of our past guests. So in the spirit of what Mike likes to call singing about what you're for rather than what you're against, we thought we'd focus our time together, not on exposing the lack of evidence of germ theory, but on the evidence, research, and studies that exist to support terrain theory or the terrain model as it's perhaps more appropriately called. Well, I'm just going to say, I, I think that's a really important notion because if we look at the work of, for example, Thomas Kuhn, who was a philosopher at the turn of the last century, and he talked about paradigm shifts. So in other words, right, when, when you have a current paradigm like germ theory, right, which is still the, the predominant paradigm, that a society or population is not going to shift just, just because that is disproven, there has to be like a replacement. Right. So I realized that to, for the whole movement to go forward um, and account for, you know, human characteristics, uh, it's very, very important. But for the, you know, for the purpose of disproving germ theory, it's not necessary at all. And it's important to make that distinction. But it's a very, very useful discussion, because what I found is that when you apply the principles of terrain, the terrain model to actual healing, that people just have amazing results. And, and that's really the, the most important thing is that people 
can, you know, attain an excellent state of health. So let's dive in and talk about first to mind, what are some of the studies or research or the evidence that supports the terrain model? So I think, um, you know, first of all, there's, we don't have an adequate body of scientific evidence using the scientific method in this area, but we do have a lot of evidence that, that we can look at and we can come up with lots of hypotheses. And there's some areas that are more developed than others, but what, what's even more critical is at the present time, there, there actually exists sufficient knowledge whether we understand exactly what's causing all the illnesses, uh, we have sufficient knowledge of how to um, help people get better. So even if we don't have all the answers, because over the last 100 years, there's been almost no research devoted to looking at anything outside of the you know, allopathic uh, um, cut, burn, poison model. So we have a lot of work to do ahead of us, and I'm actually engaged in trying to do some of that work. Uh, like I'm doing some survey research among my clients. I'm trying to collaborate with some people to do a water fasting uh, study, um, and other people are doing uh, a lot of interesting research. But it's important to know that the terrain model is not like one theory. It's... Um, Right. In fact, there's there's several different areas that we're talking about, but I like to refer to it like you do as a model or kind of an umbrella term or a paradigm, because what it means um, in contradistinction from germ theory is that the cause of disease is not from some foreign invader outside of the body, but the cause of disease is a disruption of the milieu of our body. And we have lots of models for this out in the world outside of us. Um, like, for example, if we can just look at toxic waste dumps um, and we notice that, you know, trees and, and animals and the ecosystem there is not the same <laughs> as it is in a forest, which is undisturbed by toxic waste. So, so we can understand this intuitively based on our observations. But if we want to drill down and look at more specifics, I think there are a few different categories. And I think there's kind of three major categories that I'm most interested in, and, but there are more under this umbrella. So one of them is water, and there's amazing scientific research going on there that I know you've explored on previous shows. But what I've done is a little bit different, perhaps, is I've taken this new information in science about water and applied it specifically to healing and health, um, combining it with some other data. So we can definitely discuss that. Then we have this whole interesting, fascinating field of pleomorphism, which has been very much suppressed. In fact, some of the pr predominant scientists in this field have actually been incarcerated, their labs have been raided, yeah. but there have been enough scientists doing this work and replicating it that we know that the, there's something to this and it actually fits in with other medical science that's more accepted. So I can talk about that area. And then the third area, which is um, possibly the most applicable directly to how do you address a health issue that you have has to do with toxemia. And what that is, is toxins that accumulate inside your body and cause illness. And there are many, many sources of that. Um, but we have very clear ways that we can help your body 
heal from that. And, and so the, the underlying philosophy that I have about health and biology is essentially that nature has provided all the answers. Uh, we simply have to look at nature as a model and that our, um, entity, you know, which is more than just the physical body, because it's, it's the body, the mind and the spirit that that system is actually self-healing. And just as, as it functions in day-to-day life to carry out all of the things that we do, digest food, breathe, move around, um, have fine motor skills, produce things, have creativity, all of these things our body does naturally. It's my contention that the body also can heal from any kind of trauma or illness also naturally, and that the mechanisms um, that we use to sort of um, as what we call treatment is really just adjusting the environment of our body to allow the body to carry out those processes optimally. And probably a big part of it really is to get out of the way of because what we, we do things day in and day out that prevent our body from doing this healing. And so we need to learn how to stop doing that and how to do things that, you know, optimize and a simple, the, the most simple thing that anyone can do that comes right back to the beginning of what I said is to drink water more effectively. In other words, rehydrate themselves with the proper um, methods and the proper information and knowledge. Let's jump in then. Let's jump into these three. I first just want to interject and offer an anecdote that happened to me in 2019 that really opened my eyes to exactly what you're saying, the the body as a self-healing thing. And from a young age, we see this and perhaps don't fully appreciate it, but you get cut, your body sort of heals itself. You get bruises, your body heals itself. And it's a, it's a fascinating aspect to our existence that I think that we take for granted and don't fully appreciate. Two and a half years ago, I tore my Achilles tendon, which is a pretty serious athletic injury, and discovered that uh, I had always uh, I'd always understood that you had to have surgery to repair it, and I was given an option, a non-surgical intervention, and I thought that's how could such a thing even exist? I thought you had to go in there and repair it, <laughs> and all they do is they put you in a boot that elevates your heel to bring the two ends as close together as possible and allow them to find each other and. And heal. And I thought, what an absolutely remarkable thing that my body is capable of. And in this instance, the only intervention was to put me in a boat, exactly like you're saying, you're put in a boot that allows your body to basically optimize the healing process so that your day to day, your, your day to day function does not impede that, um, that healing response. And so that was a real sort of mind blowing. Oh my gosh, like what, what else is my body able to do if I sort of just got out of the way or just took little steps to facilitate this healing process. That, that's, a, that's a really great story. And uh, I've heard other stories like that. And, you know, just to kind of look at it a little more closely, because when we have an injury like that, right, what's one of the first things that happens is that that part of your body swells up. And then what do we try to do? We try to do things to reverse the swelling, right? By take anti-inflammatories, put ice on it, elevate it, all of those things, right? But what is the swelling is just like the boot that you put on, except it's your body's way because your body can't make things out of plastic, right? So your body uses its own tools to make you a cast. And if we allow that process to happen naturally, um, and listen 
to be in tune with what our body's needs are to carry out that healing, then we will have excellent results. And, you know, you kind of proved that and you, you just took that one slight step further, right? And, and added um, that device, which is totally reasonable. And, you know, you could, you know, people centuries ago could have made a device like that out of wood and they did, right? There were lots of prosthetics back then before we could 3D print them like we can now. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, it, it's a really um, important to highlight this to people. And they all have had, as you pointed out, their own experience of this happening, right? They even, even beyond injuries, they've had colds and flu. And they've gotten better from that, whether they did any treatment or not. I mean, they were told there's no cure for that. So whatever they did, you know, was to relieve symptoms, but they got better on their own, right? Their body healed. And uh, that's what we're trying to harness in, in this way of looking at things. Yeah, empowering the individual, like rediscover your agency. So let's talk water. Yeah, so water is just something I'm so passionate about. Uh, you'll never, you know, see me without a glass of water. And, um, you know, I know that from your previous shows that you're aware of the new science related to structured water, that water is not a passive substance in our bodies, but it's actually possibly the key actually to all our biological functions by being able to absorb energy from the sun transduce that into different functions, maintain the cell membrane potential, um, support the blood flow and many, many other functions. So the work of Gerald Pollack really helped me to see how this directly applies to health, biology and healing, because he, in order to stave off some critics of his work who said that it was actually possibly contaminants in the water that caused this property of the exclusion zone of the structured, you know, liquid crystal water that he did experiments where he purposely mixed contaminants with the water to see how it affects this property. And he found it, it impedes the property of water to structure in this way. And that fit right neatly with my experience of seeing people get better from detoxifying because essentially what is going on with when there's an excess toxins is that they are contaminating the water in the body and thus preventing the water from doing its optimal functioning. And if we want to look at, for example, the membrane potential, because I think we have really good evidence now to say that water is most likely responsible for uh, maintaining the resting membrane potential, like every cell in our body is like a little battery. And if we look at cancer cells, we see that their voltage is low. And if we look at dead cells, their voltage is zero. So if we contaminate the water, this is what happens is the voltage drops down because the water can't exert its full properties. It can't absorb and transduce as much energy by maintaining that crystalline structure. So this um, could also explain why dehydration results in health problems, because if there's not enough water, then whatever contaminants or toxins are there will be more concentrated. So this is really, really key to understand some basics about why toxins um, cause trouble for the body. And even pharmaceuticals, he's tested some pharmaceuticals 
um, as well as some harmful substances, and they all decrease this EZ zone. And he's also tested some substances known to be health promoting, and those have actually augmented the EZ zone. Um, and he's going to continue to do test more substance. In fact, I gave him a list of substances <laughs> to, to test um, s- that he's going to hopefully draw upon. What so, were some of those? What were some of those substances? Sorry to interject. Well, I mean, what did I put? Yeah, I'm curious. Substances? Yeah, I'm curious to I know mean, what you're curious about. Sure. Well, it's really the things that I've found that that help people get better. So things like milk thistle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is a, something I suggested. Um, Shilajit, which is a, a trace mineral supplement that I happen to sell, um, and several other things like that, some healing herbs. Um, I think I might have mentioned bentonite clay and zeolite, uh, which are you know chelators of heavy metals and other toxins. And then for the harmful substances, um, I suggested things like uh, glyphosate, uh, aluminum hydroxide, which is an adjuvant in vaccines. Um, I suggested some uh, other types of pharmaceuticals of the varying categories. I tried to pick ones that are known to be very toxic, like the fluoroquinolone antibiotics, for example, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and perhaps some other industrial pollutants like um, some flame retardants uh, and things like that. Can you can you touch really quickly on um, the easy water because that is something that we didn't get into with any of our past guests uh, on water. Well, I'm sure that if you talked with Dolph Zantinga, you talked about it, but he calls it coherent uh, water, right? Okay. But we're really talking about um, the same thing. the The main difference is that this was originally discovered by doing these experiments trying to look at blood flow. But they didn't use blood and blood vessels. They used a block of gel um, and tunneled like a you know a, a, a hole through it to to mimic a blood vessel. And then they put water with these uh, microbeads, which the microbeads are supposed to represent red blood cells. And when they put this mixture of the water with the microbeads through this tunnel, uh, mimicking a blood vessel, they found that the particles, the microbeads stayed in the middle and they didn't go near the edge. And so since the particles were excluded from this outside edge, they called it the exclusion zone. And then that led to all the studies that essentially um, found out that the water is, is totally different in the exclusion zone than it is in the middle of the tube where the particles are. And it's actually in this liquid crystalline state that has different physical properties, like for example, it's more viscous, um, and that there's also a charge separation that occurs, that this EZ water in that crystalline state generally accumulates a negative charge. Um, So it would be like hydroxide ions. And then the water, which is called bulk water in the middle of the tube, has a positive charge or hydronium ions. And this is what creates the voltage or the potential because the charge separation, right, is what a battery is. And um, so in, in the experiments that Gerald Pollack did, he saw that if you have a hydrophilic surface or a material that is water loving, like the gel used in that experiment or like 
the blood vessels in our body, in fact, most substances in our body are hydrophilic, that this forms spontaneously um, in the water. Now, in just a glass of water without a hydrophilic surface, because glass is not a hydrophilic surface, you can still get this liquid crystalline um, type of water to form, um, but you need to uh, process the water in a certain way to bring that about. And it's not localized to next to a surface. It's sort of in the glass in different ways in, or in different places, and it might move around over time. And this is what happens when you stir a glass of water with the analema wand. So actually the, the surface of the wand, the quartz, initially acts as that hydrophilic surface when you're stirring it, but then you take that out and there's still the easy water and the bulk water left in the glass. And so what that does is that allows that water in the glass to absorb energy so that so that when you then ingest that into your body and it joins with the water in your body, it forms the exclusion zone much more readily because it's like pre-energized. Um, for that purpose. And, you know, there's a lot of research going on now to conclusively show that that actually provides health benefits, but there's enough surrogate evidence um, from plants um, and some biomarkers in humans that I'm pretty convinced uh, that it's beneficial at this point. So, you know, but I've looked at the whole picture of what you need to do to improve the water in your body, because most people know water is about two thirds by weight of our body, but if you look at it by the percent of molecules, it's, it's 99 out of every 100 molecules in our body. So it's really vital that we have enough. And in our modern culture, we've really lost touch with our thirst mechanism. So people don't have any idea of how much water to drink, how to know when they need to drink more, how much to drink and how much, you know, in what period of time. Uh, what type of water to drink, because if you just drink, for example, tap water or bottled water, um, bottled water in plastic bottles uh, has been shown to have up to 2,500 foreign chemicals in it, mm. right? So if we're just drinking that, even if we're drinking enough, we're essentially poisoning ourselves. So, so there's research in all of these areas. There's lots of clinical studies showing that dehydration is rampant. There's no universal agreement in the medical literature about how much water to drink or how to drink it. <laughs> There's lots of information about contaminants in the water from you know, heavy metals, uh, agricultural products, pharmaceuticals, microplastics. So, you know, so we have a lots and lots of research about these issues. Um, and we know that these things have adverse health effects. So, um, you know, so I've tried to put all this information together and come up with a way that you can overcome these um, difficulties and completely in 30 days rehydrate yourself fully um, and kind of start all over again. Um, and so, you know, that's that's kind of a, a synopsis of, of the importance of water research. So the water that's in your glass that you're drinking right now, is that have you run the analema wand through it or what did you source it from a spring? Tell us about your water. Yeah. So I, you know, I wish I had access to a really good uh spring water, and that's something that I am looking for um in the future. 
But what I do is I first use a reverse osmosis filter um, on my tap water, and that removes all of the contaminants that I discussed. And, you know, the other method that can remove them all is, is distillation. Yep. And I, I do that when I travel because I have a portable distiller I bring with me. Yeah. But the uh, so then I take the RO water and not only do I stir it with the wand, but I also always put my um, intentions into the water. So and it's usually gratitude. And uh, so if you've interviewed Veda, you know uh, a little bit about how that works. Um, and uh, so that's that is the the exact type of water that I drink from uh, day to day. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, what's needed is really a, a ground up re-education about water itself and he, uh, hydration, dehydration, and what you're up against, of course, are you know the propaganda machine that would put mayors of cities in commercials advocating for the drinking of tap water. <laughs> uh, it's it's a it's a funny yes. world we live in. I saw that uh, that spot from New York City, and I thought it was it was quite hilarious. But it, it brings up another important point, and this, of course, goes far beyond water. But there is this idea about scarcity. Mm. Right, that water resources are scarce. That we have, you know, drought in certain locations. Um, we some places are very very difficult to use agriculture. Right, some places are desertified. But actually, um, the model that all of the water is, you know, essentially is a finite amount and that it's cycling through, you know, evaporating into the air, then recondensing, coming down as rain, seeping into the ground, um, forming aquifers and rivers and filling up lakes and oceans. That's not the full story. So there is actually new water being created and coming to the surface all the time. And there is a ocean underneath the earth's sur surface that is essentially as big or potentially bigger than all of the oceans on the surface. Mm. And this has even been reported about in Scientific American magazine. Um, there are books about it. It was discovered in the modern era through the mining industry where they were digging these uh, rare earth metal mines and they would hit into a source because this is called primary water and it forms with heat and pressure deep down. You know, it's thought to be in the mantle of the earth, although we don't really know the structure below the crust because we've never been able to explore that deep. But it forces its way up through cracks or fissures in the rocks and um, sometimes comes all the way to the surface as a spring or a geyser and sometimes actually feeds lakes or aquifers. <clears throat> and some people actually drill wells to access this water. But this, this water is continually being made and will replenish the water on the surface. So there's really no scarcity and no reason to have that attitude. And this is played out on the world stage. Um, for example, in Libya, you know, uh, we remember uh, Muammar Gaddafi, who, you know, was uh, the famous line with Hillary Clinton. We, you know, we came, we saw he died. Right. But what led to his death? Really, there were two things that he was doing. One is he was trying to um, uh, back his currency to the gold standard <laughs> and get off the petrodollar. But to our discussion, 
he, you know, his, his nation was a desert and they had water scarcity there and they had very limited agriculture. And he found out about primary water and had wells drilled to access the primary water under the desert. And he was essentially turning the country back into a fertile land. Yeah. Um, and this, of course, after his death, this was put to an end as well as the gold uh, standard currency. But this is how it could be, um, you know, that that we don't really need to have this false misperception of scarcity. And perhaps it's around to control people because, you know, what we see contributes to that is, you know, companies like Nestle going and, you know, um, convincing towns to, you know, give them full unrestricted access to, uh, you know, a spring that's been putting out water for centuries because these springs that put out primary water, they never, st- never stop flowing. And, uh, but if we have the corporate control of those sources, then, then they can create real scarcity. Yes. Yeah, Mike and I like to say, uh, all roads lead back to those bankers. It seems. You mentioned the 30-day reset uh, involving water, and I, I, I believe your co-worker, Dr. Grayson Dart, is on is maybe at the halfway point, I believe. Is he doing a 30-day fast? That well, now that's water? different. Um, okay. So I'm talking about um, my way of water protocol, which you can still do your normal day-to-day life um, for 30 days, but get rehydrated. Okay. Now what Grayson's doing and what I did last uh, February is a, an extended water fast. And that's something that you have to take off from whatever you're doing and put it aside. So all of Grayson's responsibilities, uh, you know, um, in his, uh, training with me are suspended while he's doing the water fast. Okay. But water plays a role here, obviously, because it's the only thing that you're consuming. But this would be um, a marriage of the water, sort of water protocol, as it were, or or water being applied to health and also detoxification. Yeah. So when you um, water fasting, I have to say, is probably the the most natural mechanism of healing because it it relies, you know, fully on your body to do everything. And all you're doing is supplying adequate water. And, um, all the animals in nature fasts, right? It's so we know that this is something we can look at nature and we could see, this is how animals get better from illness and injury. And in fact, that injury you describe with your ankle, any injury like that, it, even mainstream medical research has shown that healing wound healing is accelerated with water fasting. Mm. Mm. Okay. So this is uh, a very powerful uh, tool. And if you have any kind of serious life-threatening illness, water fasting would be an excellent consideration. Um, Now, Grayson is not in that situation. He's doing it for the experience and to learn from it. He's really uh, was passionate, became passionate about it after he saw me go through it uh, last February. And it can be a life-changing experience. So it's something I recommend that people look into. Um, You know, it could be scary or intimidating for many people thinking that you're going to go so long without eating. But in reality, after the first couple of days, you're not hungry. So when, when I was at day 27, which was my first day of eating, right, I wasn't hungry. 
Like I, I, uh, the first meal was this tiny amount of strawberries. It was like, you know, two and a half strawberries (laughs) and it filled me up totally. (laughs) (laughs) What, what were, what were your other biggest like revelations coming out of that fast? Well, I mean, there's so much going on when you do something like that because you spend all of the, like in order to do a healing protocol and really let your body do what it needs to do, you have to rest Mm -hmm. and do nothing. And when I, and I, when I mean rest, I don't mean like put on some podcasts and catch up. I don't mean read a book. I don't, you know, I mean, sit there right in silence, close your eyes and sip water. And I did, you know, quite, quite a lot of that. There was a time when my kids were around that I couldn't do that as much, but I did it as much as I could. And when you're, when you're doing that, a lot of things come up for you, um, like emotional things, difficult relationships, traumas from the past, food addictions. You know, that's, that's a, a really, really big thing that comes up and it, it comes up for all of us. In fact, the way that we have been told to, to relate to food in our culture it itself is really promotes addiction. Um, you know, we, we forget that food is actually the raw materials that our body's made from. It's not something that we're supposed to, you know, use to feel better about ourselves or to gain pleasure or get a thrill from, but that's the way that you know, it's shown to us, even food can even be affection, right? Like what's, what do you see grandparents trying to give treats to the grandkids as a way to express affection, right? Um, and I, I definitely discourage that, <laughs> but uh, even my own family, it's hard to stop, right? Because it's so ingrained uh, yeah. in our culture. So, so these are the kind of things that you are confronted with when you're going through an experience like this. And, you know, if you, um, so first of all, you have to make a commitment beforehand that you're doing this for a limited time for a specific purpose and that no matter how unpleasant it is, you know, not that you would anticipate it's going to be unpleasant, but you'd say, you know, I'm just committing to doing this so that whatever happens, I'm going to stick with it for, you know, that 21 days or that 14 days or whatever the commitment that you make. And then, Um, another important thing is that uh, every single day that you spend some time with gratitude, that you want to think about that because that sets you off in a positive light and you're much better to be able to handle difficult issues when you have things to be grateful for. And you wouldn't be, you know, trying to, to work on healing yourself if, if you weren't grateful for things or opportunities, people, right? So, so these are all big parts. And then you need to be able to contemplate. And I like to do this as a formal exercise for a minimum of 20 minutes every day where you allow the priorities of the moment arise to your consciousness. Um, and other insights come up when you allow space for that. And so all of these things kind of help you deal with cravings that come up in the moment, um, 
you know, memories of trauma, things that you're struggling with. And what happens is because you're approaching the situation so differently than in your normal life before, that suddenly you see things in a different way and different um, ways of addressing the situation present itself to you that you had never thought of before. Um, one experience I had is that I was really struggling about some big decisions in my life. And almost within just a few days of the fasting, it became crystal clear what the best decision was. So it's like a way to kind of resolve ambivalence almost, or to get past those stuck points. If you give yourself the space, you anticipate and you do those, you know, you make the commitment, you express the gratitude, and that provides the context of which to do this kind of psycho-spiritual work. And in fact, this is um, uh, the exact topic uh, that is that we're, Kelly Brogan and I are going to educate about in our webinar this Saturday, which is free, um, which is part of my alchemical detox course, because this is, you know, many um, people who work with individuals or teach about detox, they, they forget to consider these mental and spiritual aspects of it and how vital they are. Because, you know, one thing that is really true with any, any type of healing process or any kind of self-improvement process that if you go through a you know a procedure or a process over a limited amount of time whatever happens then is not really the important thing the important thing is what happens the day after that's over mm -hmm. so when you do a water fast it's the day that you get back from your water fast what do you do then that's what's going to determine your health going forward are you going to end up with the same exact problems or are you going to advance and develop yourself to the next level yeah and i just want to interject here it's, it's funny we do these interviews sometimes i want to say nothing and just let the wisdom wash over me so i want to honor you for uh, showering us in your wisdom and experience um thank you um i wanted to ask you about your relationship to food post fast because i'm sure it has evolved uh, a great deal but before that just the, the words you used crystal clear um that your thinking became crystal clear and that a lot of people are speaking about how as human beings we're sort of like living crystals and that of course when you focus on gratitude uh and limit yourself to just living water things will be you will become one with that crystal structure and things makes sense that things would become crystal clear. And I'm glad you used those words. But I also want to point out um, to many people listening, they think, oh, like that is just crazy, like nothing but water for X amount of days. But um, but what is actually crazy is, is how we live presently, that we don't question it all. And it speaks to how we are all victims to very aggressive propaganda about what constitutes, quote unquote, normal living. And I think part of the work that you're doing, part of what Ben and I are trying to do with these conversations is to recontextualize what normal actually looks like, or at least question things that we take for granted as quote unquote normal. Um, and as we often like to say, everything is upside down. Like <laughs> everything that we once thought was normal is actually maybe the exact <laughs> 180 degrees off. So thank you for recontextualizing 
what normal might look like. And to get back to where I started, um, how do you relate to food? Uh, two and a half strawberries. Where where are we at now? Well, um, you know, I, I want to admit that I haven't conquered all of the issues with food yet. And um, I look at it as it's an iterative process. So, you know, I've done this one fast and I've done other things and I'm going to need to do it again. And each time I'm trying to get better and better. So I learned some fascinating things uh, about food and eating through that experience. And it's definitely changed how I eat substantially. And I'm going to get to that. But one of the issues kind of directly relates to water is that um, many of the foods that are in the modern Western diet are completely dehydrated. Yeah. In fact, anything that we cook is going to be dehydrated to some degree. And some types of cooking is going to be much more dehydrating than others, like frying and roasting, for example, probably the most dehydrating. And that also some of the driest foods happen to also be the toxic junk foods. Mm-hmm. right? Like uh, cookies and things like that, for example. Um, anything with high fat, you know, fat and water don't mix or oil and water don't mix. So some things are going to, you know, have zero water. So one thing that I do now that's much different uh, for me and my family, because I, I cook for my children, is that we have much more raw food. Hmm. Um, and the cooked food, I'm now much more likely to make soups um, stews and to like braise meats, uh, rather than cook them in other ways. And so I'm much more conscious of the water content of food. Now, the other thing is that I, I fasted and Grayson is through the Tanglewood wellness center. And that's led by a very interesting and experienced fasting expert, Lauren Lockman. But he also is of the opinion that, uh, fruit and some lettuce, are the intended natural foods for humans to eat. And so he personally has eats only fruits and lettuce, and he's done that for over 20 years, and he's been very, very healthy doing that. And this is based on some interesting information. Like now this, you could call this science, but really it's, it's observation. So the observation is one, from the perspective of the plant, So if we eat plants, what does the plant want an animal to eat? And it's really just the fruit and possibly nuts. But it doesn't want us to eat the leaves, the stems, the roots, or the seeds, because it needs those either to live, grow, or reproduce, right? So we should just be eating the fruits. Now, the lettuce leaves are kind of an exception because they're not covered with waxy um, coat, then they're not, there's no essential oils that would, um, um, you know, just, uh, sorry, prevent or discourage animals from eating them. Um, and they do have some nutrients that, uh, that complement what's in the fruit. So he's gone that respect. Now, the other way he's looked at this is from the point of view of what's our closest relatives in the animal kingdom and what, what's their diet. And he's, Um, basing it mostly on chimpanzees. And it is true that chimpanzees, you know, aside from the genetic business, looking at the anatomy of their digestive system, it's very, it's the most similar to humans. So that perhaps our most natural diet would be based on their natural diet. And it was thought that they were uh, vegan, 
that they only ate uh, fruit and leaves. But it turns out that about 10 to 15% of their diet is other things, and including that they actually hunt prey. Um, and I never knew this, but I've seen now video footage of it. And they do it in a very sophisticated way. They team up and hunt in a group um, and they have different roles and they usually hunt colobus monkeys, but they've been known to hunt other species, even uh, juvenile antelopes. And in addition to that, they also eat ants and termites um, and they use you know, tools like they put a stick in and get them out and suck them off the stick. Um, and then they also eat eggs and uh, mushrooms. So I've been trying to mimic this uh, type of diet and develop it and see how my body responds uh, to this. And, um, you know, it's a little bit challenging because I'm trying to meet the nutritional needs of my children who are growing and different from an adult. Um, and also that, that they, you know, they're not always with me, so I can't control their you know, diet a hundred percent. And I'm trying to, you know, also leave a little bit room to, um, you know, do some normal things. Like if we, if we go to a party like that, we can, you know, indulge in what's going on at the party and not be super strict. And, you know, that might not be ideal for health, but it's, it's hard to strike a balance because, you know, when I've tried to be really, really strict about my diet, what I realized is, every social situation was extremely difficult <laughs> because there would always be things that everybody's participating in that I would, you know, have to restrain myself from. And it's sort of, now I think the problem with this really is that the rest of society doesn't realize how much harm they're doing. And I hope in the future that, you know, we can, we can have social engagements where we don't have to poison ourselves necessarily, or maybe do it a little bit less. Yeah. We just did an <laughs> right? interview with uh, Covell McDermott, and he said when in, when he's in that sort of environment, hanging out with friends where there's foods he normally wouldn't eat, he thinks of those foods as an inoculation for his system. So just get a little bit in his system <laughs> to normalize his system, and then move on and detox from them. But those are his inoculations, he says. <laughs> yep. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, Let's let's move on. I think we've covered water, and we've done a nice job of it, and given the listener a lot of a lot of lovely takeaways. I, I do want to touch on pleomorphism because it is a topic that has been in the back of my mind as one that I want to talk about specifically on this podcast, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. Well, so um, pleomorphism is actually uh, what it means is the ability to change shape or form. Okay. Now, this is something that is applied to microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, etc. And w where it comes from originally is Antoine Béchamp, who is uh, sort of known colloquially as the rival of Louis Pasteur, but really Louis Pasteur uh, plagiarized and copied a lot of his work and tried to pass it off of, as his own to promote himself. And you can read about this in the diary of... Uh, of uh, Louis Pasteur um, and other books. But Béchamp um, was studying fermentation and specifically being able to uh, turn sugar to grape sugar or convert sugar. Um, and he early on thought that the microorganisms that would carry out the fermentation had to come from the air. 
Um, but then he did some experiments and found out that they actually were could also come from inside the plant material itself when it was in a closed, you know, sterile system. Um, so this led to his work with the microscope and finding out that there are these little, you know, essentially dots under a, a light microscope that you can see that he called microzymas or, you know, little bodies and that he saw that they could change form. Now, there are two other main scientists in this field that followed up on his work, um, and, and those are uh, Gaston Nasons and um, Enderlein. I can't remember his first name. And uh, Gunther. Yeah, Gunther Enderlein. And they essentially um, replicated each other's work. They observed uh, these uh, particles, and they they came up with, of course, their own name for them. One of them called them protids, and the other called them somatids. So, uh, so that makes it a little bit confusing to talk about this. But I like to call them microbial stem cells. Mm -hmm. And but what they observed was essentially a pleomorphic cycle. So they saw these these stem cells actually inside human blood. And not just in the blood plasma, but actually inside the red blood cells as well. And they observed that in disease states that they would take on different forms, like bacterial or fungal forms, rather than these stem cell dot forms. And they began to you know, correlate this with disease states as if essentially your body manifests the appropriate microorganism to help clean up whatever disease state is going on in the body. And that's how it fits with the terrain model. So, you know, most people kind of understand the microbiome or the gut biome, because now that has been shown that it's, it's vitally important. In fact, from animal experiments where they try to sterilize an animal for microorganisms, like sterilize their food and water and have them in, live in a sterile environment, they die after like three to five days. So these microorganisms, now we know, are not only key for our survival, but they really, I look at them as part of us, like that we are made up of, you know, what we call human cells, and then we're made up of all of these different microorganisms. And it's like this whole community in total is who we are as individuals. And, you know, there's lots of science to support this. Like, for example, they've seen gene sequences from gut bacteria in brain cells, right? So that there's some, and it makes sense because everything that's in your gut actually comes from the outside environment. So your gut is kind of a way of sampling what's in your environment. And then uh, it detects that and then sends information to the data processing center of the body, right? The brain. So the, they could, we could determine how does our body react to the, what's going on in the environment, right? This is probably why we all get, you know, not all of us, but um, many of us get colds when the temperature and humidity drop, right? That there's a signal of that change in our environmental conditions. And then the body says, oh, it's time to express a cold. Um, so so that's a key, key aspect to understand. And what I'm talking about is kind of marrying these two branches where we see these forms, where they come from, and then we realize how vital they are for health and how we want to support them 
in the gut. And we know that when you're in good, when the terrain of your body is healthy, that you're going to have a healthy variety and number of microorganisms in your gut. So we've, we've seen that as a correlate. In fact, one of the studies Dolph is doing with the water wand is actually um, examining the changes in the, the gut flora with people who use the wand to, for their water versus people who don't to see if, if that um, tells us something about the health promoting effects of that kind of water. So I think the, the way that I like to look at this and explain the pleomorphism part is that it's the same exact thing as human stem cells. Now, we, we all have heard about stem cells, right? And we know that, that they're sometimes given for transplants or as a therapy. But what they are is that they are cells. And originally, the, you know, the, the original stem cell is the fertilized egg, right? The zygote. Because that one cell changes, right, through its, when it divides and has daughter cells, over time, they change shape and function and turn into every different kind of cell in our body. And if you ever look at different kinds of human cells under the microscope, you'll see that they are, there's a million different shapes and sizes of cells, right? And they all come from this one stem cell. So the, the somatid or the, you know, uh, microzyma, whatever name you want to use it, the microbial stem cell, that is the same kind of thing. It can um, divide and differentiate into all of the different microorganism cell types rather than like in the bone marrow, we have blood stem cells, right? Hematopoietic stem cells. They turn into white blood cells of which there are many kinds, platelets, megakaryocytes, red blood cells, and all of the intermediates. And it's the same thing. So the, the microbial stem cell turns into streptococcus, staphylococcus, Neisseria, right? Candida, all of the, all of those different terminal uh, differentiated cell types. And so it's, it's actually pretty easy to understand because most people are pretty familiar, at least if they've studied any biology with how stem cells differentiate into other types. So it's really not, um, it's not out of the realm of what's accepted in mainstream science. It's, it's just that it conflicts uh, with germ theory, which says that these microorganisms cause disease rather than help us uh, heal and recover from disease. And that those microorganisms can be uh, transmitted from human to human through respiratory droplets and so on, correct? Right. Well, they, you know, you can certainly pass microorganisms back and forth between people, um, but you can't pass disease back and forth between people. Whenever right. that has been studied in an experiment, no, nobody got sick. And in order to make it appear that they've done this in experiments, they do crazy things like, let's say that you have, uh, you know, a uh, pneumonia and your lung turns to pus. And they want to show that uh, that can, you know, is caused by a bacteria and spreads to others. So they would take the pus out of your lungs and then like inject it, like stick a needle into the lungs of an experimental animal and inject it in there and then show the animal might have a problem in their lungs. But that's, that's, you know, that's a crazy experiment. It doesn't prove anything because if you take any foreign biological tissue and inject it into an animal's lungs, it's going to make them sick. Right. So, but 
whenever we exhale, there's a bunch of microorganisms in our breath, right? Every tear, every saliva, every all the snot, any waste products that come out of our body is, is filled. These microorganisms are ubiquitous. They're everywhere around us, on every surface, in the air, in the water, um, in the earth right? They're, they're ubiquitous unless there's poisons that are, that are killing them or sterilizing the environment. So you, you're, we're transferring them, we're taking them in our body at every second of every moment of every day. And therefore, what determines health outcome given exposure to all these microorganisms is simply the state of your terrain? Yeah, that, that would be my contention. Absolutely. Yeah. The the third sort of category that you had outlined at the top, um, as we were talking about terrain model, evidence provided the terrain model or the way that you look at the terrain model was um, toxemia. So toxins that accumulate and cause illness. In the time that we have remaining, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, well, this is, you know, really, really huge um, because, because of the industrial revolution, technology, our health system we're just exposed to an enormous amount of not only chemical toxins, but other types of toxins like radiation of various forms, like um, misinformation, propaganda, and brainwashing, <laughs> right? Um, and lots of other things. And there are some estimates that, it, that actually in a given 24-hour period, we could be exposed uh, to over 2 million distinct chemicals that are synthetic, that are not from nature, so that our body doesn't have necessarily a mechanism for processing those things. And this is why uh, these chemicals often get stuck and accumulate in our body. And, you know, um, a great example to look at this would be heavy metals. Now, um, the heavy metals that are poisonous were not really present in the natural environment until we started doing mining into the earth. Yeah. And some of these things, you know, are you, they're used for industrial purposes and some of them are waste products or byproducts of the um, element that's being used for the industrial purpose. And in the 19th century, interestingly, before allopathic medicine became the, the predominant model, they, they actually used drugs based on mercury and arsenic, uh, which were extremely toxic. I mean, they gave mercury to babies who were teething and they get, said, give them enough until they like have vomiting or diarrhea. So basically make sure they have enough to poison their gut and then you have a therapeutic response. And maybe they're so relieved from, you know, that poisoning that they don't worry about the tooth anymore. I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but, you know, it is really fascinating, uh, that that was the case, but these substances, since they are not prevalent, you know, in foods that we would eat or in the environment before industry, our body doesn't really have a way of processing them and eliminating them out of the body. Um, so they can, you know, sometimes, and, you know, there's a lot of research on this. One book you should look at is called Crooked by Forrest Moretti because he um, outlines a lot of the research with respect to what happens to the aluminum that's in vaccines once it gets in your body. And your body really doesn't have a way to, to deal with it. So it just tries to basically wall it off, 
like store it in a like toxic waste site, right? That has good security around it. And that's called a granuloma. And sometimes people can actually feel this as a knot at the injection site after they get a vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, the body doesn't generally store it there forever. Something triggers um, the immune system, which is the system in your body that stores it there temporarily to do something else. And then it ends up moving the aluminum to other places. And then that's usually when it when it can cause problems uh, with illness. So um, you can look at a lot of these patterns. So that's, you know, so aluminum and heavy metals have been pretty well studied for toxicity. You can find tons of animal studies on arsenic, on lead. Um, And then you can also find studies with natural products that show that they can reverse the damage from these heavy metals, as well as remove the heavy metals out of the body, right? And then two substances that have just amazing body of research for this purpose is one cilantro, Hmm. um, which is just incredible. It reverse brain damage, kidney damage, liver damage, remove lead and chromium from those organs in experimental animals. And then the other one is zeolite. And there are others with less, um, fewer studies, but we know that they're very similar to those products and work in a similar way. Things like chlorella, bentonite clay, um, and horsetail, you know, the herbs that have a high silica content. So, so we have good evidence that these toxic metals cause disease. And we have good evidence that some natural elements and plants can reverse this toxicity. So that's just one area. And we can look at, you know, a variety of areas. Like we could look at, for example, fluoride, uh, which is, you know, purposely added to the water in the, in much of the United States and in places elsewhere in the world. There are a lot of nations who have been wise about um, not accepting this. And fluoride originally was a waste byproduct from aluminum mining. And actually the the aluminum mining companies had to pay to dispose of it. Um, they did market it for as rat poison to get rid of some of it, but it wasn't popular enough to use it all up. So when they kind of made a deal with the American Dental Association and had this launch, this whole putting fluoride in the water, it not only solved um, a problem of an expense for that industry, it actually turned an expense into an asset. And now they Uh, It's profitable to make the waste from aluminum mining. But we know from um, large epidemiologic studies in in humans that uh, fluoride reduces the IQ of of children, right? So, you know, that's why filtering in your water is so important if you're drinking tap water, uh, you know, if nothing else, just to get out the fluoride. And, you know, it has to be reverse osmosis or distillation, or possibly like a Berkey filter, I think also removes the fluoride, but your regular carbon charcoal filters will not remove it. Um, So you have to be diligent about that, especially, you know, if you have young children. So there's a wealth of data looking at these different toxins. We didn't even touch on glyphosate, of course, um, you know, which is designated by the World Health Organization as being a carcinogen. We know that it's toxic to the bacteria in your gut and causes all sorts of problems related to that. 
Um, but if we look at, you know, what do you get? What's one of the first foods that you give to babies when they uh, are ready to eat solid food? Cheerios. And independent studies have shown a tons of glyphosate in Cheerios. So, you know, <laughs> there's lots of, uh, the, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit overwhelming when you start to look in this area to be honest with you. But the good news is, is that almost irrespective of what toxins are in your body and maybe causing health problems, maybe put you at risk of having future health problems, things like, you know, chronic disease and cancer, that there are very well established mechanisms and methods that you can get these things out of, help your body essentially get these things out. And in those situations where the body has a really hard time um, getting rid of it because it's not a natural thing, there are some things you can do that can help uh, that along. Like, for example, using what I call healing solvents. And I'm talking about things like DMSO, castor oil, turpentine that can dissolve those oily toxins in the body that our water-based body has a really hard time. In fact, if you look at what the, like people realize, I think most people know that the liver is like the main powerhouse detoxifying organ of our body, right? And it filters the blood and detoxify it. But what is it really doing in that process? What it's really doing is it's taking things that are not soluble in water and it's doing chemical reactions on them to make them water soluble. Because then once they're water soluble, our body can process and get rid of them. So um, some of these things are even the liver enzymes have a hard time doing this with. And so this is where the healing solvents can come into play because they can dissolve those things. And uh, once they're in solution, they can be excreted um, in that solvent. And I'm not, I don't know exactly how that works, but I have just seen hundreds of people have amazing results from using some of these substances to help uh, detoxify. So, so there's quite a lot of information to take in here. I'm glad you brought up DMSO. We're going to have Amanda Volmer on um, next month, and uh, that's a topic that I look forward to getting into with her. I know she is something of an expert on that. I want to be respectful of your time, and I uh, wanted to make sure that we gave you an opportunity to talk about the alchemical detox, which you mentioned, and wondered you know, what, um, what elements that you spoke of just now around uh, toxemia and detoxification do you incorporate into the alchemical detox, and how, where else do you take that? Because you did mention mind, body, spirit. Absolutely. Well, uh, really, everything that I discussed today, including the information on water, is all in this course because what I set out to do, you know, in making this, and I, it took me over a year to put this together, is that I wanted you to have all of the information about um, how do you, you know, get to a state of health such that you can take this information and you can customize it for your individual purposes. So you don't have to rely on now. I, of course I have my own protocols and sometimes I customize those uh, with clients, but you don't have to do it my way. I want you to do it your way, take the responsibility for your own healing and you're going to have the most amazing results doing it that way. And so I'm trying to give you all the information so that, that you can do that. And this is, you know, something that someone with very limited health knowledge can jump right into, but there's enough richness of the content that 
an experienced practitioner would still benefit from this uh, because of the the comprehensive and in-depth nature. And there's different, you know, like there's all these things that if you want to know it in more detail, I tell you, here's the sources uh, to read. But the it encompasses, you know, not just the physical procedures of, you know, how to use healing solvents, how to avoid cleansing reactions, this kind of thing. But it also gets into the mental and the spiritual aspects. And, and the, the module of the webinar this weekend is called Spiritual Alchemy, is going to be focused on that uh, specifically. But so all the modules, like it starts off with an overview of what all of these toxins are, where do they come from, and what are they doing? Then I talk about how the body does all of the normal detox physiology, looking at all of the organs involved, the liver, the skin, the kidneys, the lungs, um, you know, even the female genital organs and, and uh, even the eyes. Then I get into the methods of detox and I talk, there's one module just on using the colon and colon therapy. There's a module just on the liver. There's a module on detox diets. There's a module on healing solvents. There's a module on trace minerals, a module on heavy metals and chelation. Um, and so it's covering really the entire gamut of how you could deal with any toxin that's out there. Um, and then there's a special module on water where I cover this in depth and the protocol I mentioned, of course, is included, but you'll be able to modify it for your own purposes if you want, or do it, do it, you know, in your own way. So, and then the whole thing is formulated in the framework of alchemical transformation, because this provides a time honored and a very elegant way of just thinking about going through a process of making a major change in your life. And I came to this kind of after the fact, because I realized that um, when I started learning the basics of alchemy, that what I was teaching about in terms of healing was exactly these steps right, that are involved in the alchemical process. You know, for example, one, there's these uh, seven steps of transformation, right, that you, you know, first you're a sickly, you know, stressed out <laughs> individual with no energy, right, and then you go through this process of healing. And on the other side, you're much more healthy, you have vitality, your relationships are better, right? And this is, that is the transformation process that I'm talking about. And there are these seven steps in al alchemy that describe various aspects of that process. And I noticed that they all fit things that I was teaching about. You know, for example, there's one process called fermentation. And we know, you know, we've had, we, we've, we've eaten things that have gone through this process, right? We eat fermented foods, or if we drink beer, it's been fermented. And we know what that is, is that we take, you know, uh, plant material and, um, or occasionally meat, and we add microorganisms, right? We add living microorganisms or add life to it. And that changes the substance and makes it into something really special right? That we might enjoy. And um, you do this during a healing process. So if you fast or you do a detox diet, that actually 
uh, one of the aspects of a detox diet, and that's the one module I forgot to mention, is that you you eat foods that are actually food for your gut flora, for the microorganisms, right? So you're actually fermenting your own gut during this healing process. Now you don't, you know, think that uh, you know beer is going to come out the bottom end, but <laughs> this is right. But this is really going on. And, and, you know, and the same thing with the other six aspects that I saw, oh my gosh, this, when I'm teaching about this, this is what it's doing. As, as Mike and I like to say, there are no coincidences and I would like to uh, apply that to your observation that there's wonderful alignment between what you were doing and the alchemical process that has brought you to this place. Well, we'll, we will put a link in the show notes, Andy, to, um, to the alchemical detox course and look forward to learning more about it. Um, as we wrap up a couple questions that we always ask all our guests, one is what are your non-negotiables? Those habits that you do every day to tend to your terrain. Well, um, you know, one thing I do is, is meditate. Um, and I've been doing that for a number of years. Um, Another thing that I am very serious about my water. So, you know, first thing when I get up, I drink water um, and, you know, it's processed as I described and I drinking water throughout the day. And I'm very conscious of how I keep up with that. Um, I'm also very, I, you know, always not every single day, but um, at least half of the days uh, taking my trace minerals to make sure that I get those. Um, and, uh, also I, I don't eat in the morning. I don't eat, uh, you know, until the earliest would be 11 AM. And that's usually when I have my kids, if, when I'm by myself, it's more like one or two. So the sort of letting the bowels rest and the body rest from digestion every day to, um, allow for proper, uh, functioning of the digestive tract. And where can the listener learn more about you? Uh, I think my website uh, and my newsletter are the best ways. It's andrewkaufmanmd.com. And um, if you sign up for my newsletter, there's always a, uh, a video offering that you get something of value. And then we can uh, keep you informed about everything that's going on because I'm involved in quite a lot of uh, things, uh, as you um, mentioned earlier. So uh, sometimes even I'm confused about what's going on this week or next <laughs> week. Uh, but we always um, announce everything there. And, you know, something that would be really helpful for people that um, want to have ongoing access to this kind of information as it evolves is that I have uh, the True Medicine Library, which is essentially a repository of a lot of this information. So this, even this interview itself will uh, be archived there in the future, um, as well as uh, many lectures, not just on debunking germ theory, but on various aspects of natural healing. And in fact, I'm trying to establish a historical archive of all of the um, medical science related to the flaws of germ theory and sort of, you know, for posterity and for the history books in the future, because I see, you know, this whole paradigm of healthcare changing over. And um, so there's a lot of rich curated information that people can get there. And we have a version of it that's completely free um, that you just have to sign up for. Uh, it's called the True Medicine Library. The link will be on my website. 
Wonderful. And again, folks, we'll put the link in our show notes as well. Uh, Dr. Andy Kaufman, you're welcome back on this podcast anytime. I know you're a busy man. We feel like we only scratched some surfaces here. And perhaps on the next time, if you do return, we can go a little deeper into your food addictions, particularly your special interest in strawberries. I think we just scratched the surface there, but there's a lot of ground that we can make up. <laughs> but thank you very much for for taking the time and joining us on the on the podcast. And we appreciate it. It, it really was my pleasure. A very uh, nice discussion. Thank you. Now it's time for the after party. Come and join us in the pioneer room. Come and join us in the pioneer room. The after party in the pioneer room, TM. <laughs> uh, all credit to Dr. Covell McDermott. <laughs> thank it's you for the world, and we just live in it. That's right. Thank you, thank you for the lifetime guest passes to the pioneer room. <laughs> Let's make laminates. <laughs> laminates, we are going to Dr. Andrew Kaufman, Michael Miranda, thoughts? Do you feel as blessed and inspired after that conversation as I do? Yeah, I do. I'm so grateful uh, to have, I'm so grateful to have gotten him on. It was, it was always a must have guest. I mean, he, you know, he, he did terrain the film. He was one of the key subjects in the viral delusion, like anything that's come up in the last two years around debunking germ theory. Like he is involved. He's doing so much. And what was really gratifying to hear after we, um, after we stopped recording was that he was thankful that we moved on from germ theory. You know, he's feeling a little burnt out on talking about it, which I sort of was sensing in him and others. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, all credit goes to you for the amazing saying, and way of living to sing about what you're for and rather than what you're against. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I love his, what is it called? Maybe his bedside manner. He's so eloquent and calm and clear. And he mentioned maybe uh, after we stopped recording, how he feels like he's a born educator. Like that's something Mm. that comes naturally to him. Mm -hmm. And I sense because some of these doctors who have been sort of thrust into the spotlight, as it were, they're not necessarily naturals in an interview or in front of the camera or a webinar or whatever it is, even though there's uh, a demand for it and I think uh, uh, a market for it. And as Bradley Campbell says, it's like we need legions of healers out there. Like that's how we're going to change like the Robin Hooding healthcare back to the masses from the ground up. But Andy has a beautiful, relaxed way of conveying information that um, it, I like, I trust him just his, again, his bedside manner, his demeanor, his clear wealth of knowledge and not just book smart, but like he's put a lot of these modalities to the test with his own experientially, right? Mm. Like his water fasting and, I mean, that really struck me, and, and we could have gotten deep into that. Um, what he was describing when you to to do a water fast and to truly rest and to not listen to podcasts and not read books and not kick up your feet on the on the ottoman and watch shows. No, to like to rest, it he was just describing 
meditative states, to truly be with yourself, to be in the moment, to see what comes up, to practice gratitude. Th- these are all meditation. Mm-hmm. These are these are our principles that come up in a conversation around meditation. And we didn't necessarily like use that word specifically, but that's that's what we were talking about. And there's just so much to say there. And we, I sort of got in my comment about like what is normal and how our, in the Quinian sense, you know, how we live is not normal. It's not right. It's not healthy. It's, and even though the predominant sort of uh, understanding of the way society is set up, we've normalized it, but it is not normal. And just the idea that not eating might be normal, that animals will not eat after an injury or it's this idea like how we relate to food three square meals a day and wake up and eat a big breakfast all this shit that's like drilled into us from youth it's not really accurate as it as it's playing out and just the idea of normalizing two weeks of meditation or more 21 days or 27 days of only consuming structured water and sitting with your thoughts as a normal behavior. That's, that's a world I want to move towards. I agree. And thank you for bringing up too, that it is, as he said, looking, (laughs) taking our, our cues from nature. Yeah. That nature has provided the model. The terrain model is really just looking at nature and going, what's working in nature. Nature's yeah. figured it out. All the animals out there figured it out. It 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 strives towards homeostasis. Mm. There are ebbs and flows, and there's fluctuations, but it's always striving for homeostasis. In the same way that the body is, nature is always trying to heal. And 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 this this idea that that animals nat, all fast, all do water fast when they're injured, yeah. when something's wrong with them, they stop eating, they fast, they rest. Like this is what we should be doing. It's made incredibly more difficult because of the lives we lead and the civilizational system that we are all captives of. But it sounds so enticing. Well, think about what's at the other end of that seven day, 14 day, 20, 28 day of nothing but water and meditation. And like the, like you said, the crystal clarity. Yeah. That's what it is. How many of us don't have like, one, three, five, ten things that we're grappling with right now, as far as decisions go, that like we we could use a little bit of that. I mean, I don't think there's a single person on this earth that couldn't use a little bit more crystal clarity. Um, I mean, he trotted out a statistic that every twenty minutes we're exposed to as many as two million toxins mm. man-made toxins yeah that's i mean when you put things in that sort of context all sort of mystery about why we may <laughs> not be operating at optimum health is like it, again it's another duh moment like mm-hmm. how can our bodies possibly keep up with two million toxic insults in a 20 minute span and of course but I mean, who knows what those these figures even mean and blah 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 but it just shows you all that we're up against and the fact that our bodies are able to do as well as they do is a testament to how brilliant our bodies are 100 i'm so glad that you ended with that because that's where i wanted to to go is that that's what i take from it you know you could look at it like you said and be so overwhelmed like he said you could it's overwhelming it, it's so easy to get overwhelmed yeah. and you can uh, collapse and go hedgehog and get fearful 
or you go, I'm going to put my full faith. I'll do what I can. Yeah. I'm going to find those areas where I can eliminate this stuff and then put full faith in my body that it can deal, it can adapt. And then I'm going to discover what are the ways that I can optimize that body's healing response. Like it's so, it, it just makes so sense. It's so much sense. And, I, and, and that's why I love getting guys like him on because so much of what he's saying resonates. It already resonates for you and I. And now what we're doing is just learning more and more, like learning more and more of the, the little things, the details, water fasting. Okay. What are some of these detoxification ideas? The fact that when he is talking alchemical detoxification he's not just accounting for like the physical processes but he's talking about the mind and the spirit like these are things that you and i are already going yep you hit there it is there's the cord again yeah like we are humming right now so uh more to more to uh, uh integrate right uh absolutely i mean i've been really hot on meditation lately just i i sort of feel like i'm just stumbling along my own path but even dr kaufman said like that's at the root of his, you know, alchemical detox course, make it your own. I mean, that that was yeah. something he said very clearly. Take all of this wisdom, these portals, these modules, and make them your own. Mm. Customize it to your uh, to your life and to not just your life in like an organizational sense, but like in the way that you as an individual, I as an individual make sense of the world. And that's sort of how I'm approaching meditation. It's like, I've paid attention. I've read some books. I've listened to some interviews, but more importantly, I have intuition and I, I trust my intuition and I, that's sort of my guide, but just the act of making time every day, whether it's two minutes or 20 minutes or two hours to sit with yourself, um, from a place of gratitude and a place of, uh, like beyond the space time continuum to be truly present in the moment with yourself is really powerful medicine that I'm only beginning to tap into and understand, but I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with it and I just can't get enough right now. So it was nice to hear Dr. Kaufman reflect that that's part of his non-negotiable practice as well. I love that. I, I it's, it's an area that I, I desperately need more of. I've, I've been resistant. I just have not, I have not worked it into my everyday. Um, it's interesting. There's this this trope in like fitness circles. What is the best workout? And the answer is whatever you do every day. Like what is the best workout routine? Whatever you're going to stick with every day. Like what is the best diet? Whatever you could stick with every day. Sure. And I feel like the same thing with meditation. You know, it's and and that's what I like about the customization of his detox. It's like what is going to work for you? And it starts with what can you stick with. Well, because and I don't think, uh, I don't, you know, you do your river walks every day and that is its own uh, style of a meditative practice. This is true. This and you is don't, true. don't throw that out the window as something that you're not doing because I think that counts. And when I sit down and play guitar for 20 minutes, true. Th- that feels like you're a meditative right. practice, you know? So it's like we can broaden the def. You don't have to necessarily sit cross-legged with your eyes closed to be, you know, connecting with the ether. I think there's, there's different ways, different shades, different different ways of, of accessing uh, the present moment. Or you're either listening to a 15-minute Russell Brand above the noise or you're not. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Right. He's, he's, uh, by the way, it is funny sometimes when I do listen to a 15-minute Russell Brand above the noise that I'm listening to Russell Brand yeah, doing know. a guided meditation. 
Sometimes I'm pulled from the meditation because I'm like, what am I doing listening to Russell Brand? I know. For a meditation of all people. Well, since you brought him up, what what <laughs> what I love about that man is that sure like he's had a journey, right? Like he was yeah. a cliche of a movie star with drug problems and sex addictions and blah 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 blah, all the the cliche. Um but he somehow survived that and worked on himself to become sober, to adopt a healthy lifestyle, um, and to to be, I think, a truer version of himself. And now what he does beyond you know news commentary and comedy, which he's quite good at, is he's helping people to center themselves through meditation. Like yeah. his service on this earth. And I think that's not a small thing. Like yeah. he has an audience, he's charming, he's charismatic, and he's using his charisma and his star power to heal people, period. And I don't see that many other celebrities doing doing that sort of work. So I, mm-hmm. I have nothing but um, a good a good vibe. When I think about Russell Brand, it's it's I think he's doing good work. And I know people... Uh, say all sorts of things about anybody in media uh, voicing their opinions. But that alone, the fact that he is helping people learn that the art of meditation is not a small thing. Here, here. We'll, uh, we'll have to bring that up with him when we have him on. <laughs> Amen. Uh, well, let's see. Mil- Milk Thistle, Sheila Jeet. We didn't get too deep into these things with uh, with Andy, but hopefully we can get him on. You know, when Another we time. were like 40 minutes into the interview, I was looking at the clock and I know he said he had, you know, about an hour and we were still on water. And I was thinking like, maybe this interview is just going to be water. We can do a whole another hour on pleomorphism. But I'm glad I'm glad you, you sort of hopped to pleomorphism because that's something I am fascinated by. I just listened to an interview with Steve Falconer from Space Busters on uh, a light on podcast. Uh-huh. And they spoke about pleomorphism. Uh, that was sort of the first I heard of it. And I was super intrigued. So thank you for, for steering the conversation in that direction. But I think we could circle back with, with Andy and, and hit some of these topics in, in greater detail. Yeah, go a little deeper. And um, Space Busters also put out a nice long sort of documentary style video on uh, the end of germ theory or bye-bye germ theory. I can't remember what they titled it, but I think I put a link on our resources page. Yeah, it's on the terraintheory.net um, where you can watch that. And they do a, a wonderful job. Just looking at uh, isolation papers, you know, original studies and papers and and uh, exposing the methodology. So I'll have to check out that podcast. Yeah. Um, also, really cool after we stopped recording, talking a little bit about music and uh, Andy bringing on Victor Wooten for their uh, biofield tuning sessions and webinars a while ago. Yeah. Fun to make that connection. Absolutely. It sounds, it sounds like he's a big music fan. And I look forward to following up on that front with him. And uh, just like you said, all these notes I have scribbled in cilantro as like a mm. powerful detox herb. Like maybe I had heard that before, but I forgot. But like I love being reminded of some of these tools at our disposal that that um, are like, I'll use that word again, normal. Like most mm. people can find cilantro in the herb section as opposed to like zeolite or, or or horsetail or some of these things that seem a little bit more eccentric. Uh, I love that cilantro is a powerful detox herb. I agree. I agree. 
Well, folks, remember, head to terraintheory.net and the Redefine Nature page. Go sign the change.org so that yes. we can redefine nature to include humans once again. Reminder that neither Mike nor I are medical experts, so nothing you heard here should be taken as medical advice. Remember that you are light, you are love, and you are your primary healthcare provider. We'll catch you on the next one.